Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. Mm-hmm, that's true. So I learned <laughs> this week that I am an old millennial. What does that mean? Well, I'm always chafing when people are saying, you're a millennial, but by most definitions, scientific, if that's what <laughs> this is science. by the advertising industry. <laughs> yeah. If this is science, most scientific definitions of millennials <laughs> start in 1981 or 1982. So I'm always at the early part of millennial. But they're always describing all these qualities of millennial, you know, oh, tech savvy and all these things about it. And I'm like, what? I didn't even <laughs> have the internet until college, basically. So there was an article in New York Magazine, Science of Us section, called Don't Call Me a Millennial, I'm an Old Millennial. But it really just narrowed in on it for me. And as an example, can you imagine if middle school you had social media how much more horrific everything would have been nope Uh, nope but one of the things that he says the author says is like even thinking about learning how to snapchat makes me want to take a long peaceful nap and Mm. i was like you get me but also the thing (laughs) there's a reason why mashup is on instagram stories and not on snapchat yeah you're like cool (laughs) this is cool this is for like moms um but of course, the thing that unites all millennials is um, losing your virginity to Usher. Oh, well, I mean. I've never identified with millennial. Like, I think I probably share some characteristics with you as an old millennial, but our friend Dory claimed this was I'm Generation Catalano. Mm-hmm. That little slice between Gen X and old millennial, like, my worldview was shaped by my so-called life. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Obviously thought every boyfriend was going to be Jordan Catalano. Mm-hmm. And to all of you young millennials out there who are listening, you can watch the whole series on YouTube. It only lasted one season. And also you <laughs> so, should not um, want your boyfriend to be like Jordan Catalano. He no, was a POS. No. Anyways. No, and he, then he slept with your best friend. It oh, was not God. Good. I don't know Come why on, that Rayanne. was like Get it together. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, too, because these are kind of such arbitrary groupings in some way. And like then people identify with them really strongly. And it just got me thinking about like the identities that we don't choose and that we don't really have any control over. Right, exactly. So we here at Mashup believe that you can choose to identify however you want, mostly. Like that's a big part of our philosophy. But you know, not Rachel Dolezaling and but in many no Dolezaling. No <laughs> but in many respects you are empowered over your own identity. But there's things that we don't get to choose, like the year we were born in or what technology or trend is dominating in your generation or this is all related swear <laughs> your health status mm-hmm. well i'm gonna take a moment here and say fuck you pre-existing conditions and everybody who voted for stripping health care from 24 million americans <clears throat> you're disgusting yes fuck you you're disgusting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fuck you okay oh <laughs> Well, I feel better now. I mean, I feel marginally better. <laughs> marginally better. Mar- we did what we could do. Yeah. Um, okay. So today on the show, we're exploring how your identity shifts when all of those factors that are not in your control suddenly start taking over your life, like sickness, like cancer. So we have the Tunisian-Swiss-American mashup, Suleika Jawad, on today. You should know her from her incredible New York Times column, Life Interrupted, in which she chronicled her leukemia treatment and recovery as a really young woman. Um, She's solidly middle millennial, and she's just so thoughtful about how her identities have shifted as a woman, as a mashup, and as a now healthy cancer survivor. 
Right, and she is working on her first book, Between Two Kingdoms, all about this liminal space between identities, which we love those liminal spaces, and we learned so much from our conversation with her. I have been allergic to peanut butter my entire life until about four years ago when I had a bone marrow transplant with my brother, whose nickname is Frenchie for reasons that we don't have to get into, until my brother Frenchie was my donor, and now I have all of his seasonal allergies, but I've lost my allergy to peanut butter. The fact that this actually changed for you is kind of amazing. That's where it was in the marrow. Bone marrow? In the DNA. Well, so my blood type changed. Shut it. I now it. have my brother's DNA, so if I were to commit a crime... And oh, yeah. There were no, yeah, lots of law and order material. We had read about it, the, the like going into it knowing that you have a 35% chance of survival. Yeah. Just from the procedure or from the recovery or the. Yeah, so both. Basically, what they do to give you an idea, I did about 35 rounds of intensive chemotherapy in the one week before my transplant. The idea is to completely wipe out your bone marrow. So, Uh, What they do is they keep blasting you with chemotherapy until you have zero white blood cells left, zero red blood cells. Uh, And they call that day zero. And that's when they give you uh, your donor's bone marrow. And then you have to basically wait and hope that the graft takes. And if the graft doesn't take, then you will die in those next few days. But the bigger issue is there's a bigger issue. There's a long term recovery from it, which is that you have no immune system. Like you have anything, a cold, even a spore from a fresh cut flower mm-hmm. can do you. And so you have to be super careful. And there are just like a lot of different complications. That is that forever? Can reject. No, certainly not. I think everyone's different. For me, I've definitely had. I'm prone to infections, I'm prone to viruses, and that's been a challenge for me, but I think I'm getting stronger and I'm getting healthier. So maybe you could give our listeners a background on your sickness and that part of your identity. Yeah, so in the summer of 2010, I had just graduated from college and I moved to Paris. And, you know, my job in Paris is far from my dream job. I was working a nine-to-five as a paralegal, uh, but I was really hoping to get my foot into the journalism world and more specifically to do some reporting from North Africa. And in the spring of 2011, after a few months of being in France, I got what I hoped might be my first sort of real job that I was excited about, which was an opportunity uh, to work as a stringer in Tunisia, just as the revolutions were mm-hmm. beginning to gain momentum. And looking back, you know, I hadn't been feeling well for a while, probably uh, starting sometime during my senior year of college. But my symptoms at the time seemed so unremarkable. I'd say to my friends, like, I feel so exhausted. And I wake up every morning feeling like I have a permanent hangover. And they'd say to me, like, us too. Right. You know, like these are not <laughs> novel things to feel in your first year out of college. Um, but as my health began to decline and as I started getting sicker and sicker with just colds and, and flus that wouldn't go away, um, I started to think that something might be seriously wrong with me. And that's how I ended up 
going to see a, a doctor at the American Hospital in Paris who agreed with me. He took one look at me on the examining room table and said, uh, vous n'avez vraiment pas la bonne mine, which means basically in French, uh, you look like crap. Mm. <laughs> and I was admitted to the hospital for a week. I love that the Frenchman getting, said that. Like, yeah. he's he just like, like you look like yeah. crap. <laughs> Get it yeah, together. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he ended up releasing me with a diagnosis of something called burnout syndrome. Um, Is that a real thing? That sounds like something that, again, every 22-year-old woman could be like, oh, I think I have burnout syndrome. Yeah, and I think burnout is very real. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, at that time, wasn't confident enough to contradict a doctor, but I still had a feeling mm-hmm. that I did not have burnout syndrome. Um, so in a way, you know, to make a long story somewhat short when I did get my actual diagnosis which was a few weeks later I felt a great relief um, Mm. because I'd spent months sensing that something was wrong and not fully trusting myself you know to investigate that or to push doctors when they were you know sending me home with yet another uh, script for an antibiotic or telling me to get some rest so yeah I think I felt strangely relieved when I received my diagnosis, which was uh, for acute myeloid leukemia and uh, a rare bone marrow disorder called myelodysplastic syndrome. At the same time, you know, I was 22 when I got that diagnosis, which meant that I hadn't really started a career when I was an adult, but also not. Uh, I didn't know how to do my taxes. I was still on my dad's health insurance. And after that diagnosis, uh, I ended up moving back home into my childhood bedroom in upstate New York and kind of straddling these two worlds of, you know, being a kid and, and, and being an adult, which in a way was not a new feeling for me, uh, that feeling of straddling mm-hmm. different worlds. It's a sort of it's a different kind of code switching. Actually. Yeah. I mean, one that. We, we all, that mashups, we talk a lot about, right? How you mm-hmm. live in multiple worlds as Suleika Jawad, right? right. Um, and then you live in multiple worlds as a, a person becoming an adult and then as a sick person in, in a family, in a, health, a healthy world, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of transformation of being sick and then like, quote, being not sick or being healthy, you know, has... You've written so much about your sickness and that in some ways, like, has launched your career, right? Like, uh, you're a column in the New York Times and all the incredible writing that you've done and the speaking that you've done. Has cancer become one of your identities? You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they first get sick, spend a lot of energy fighting that descriptor. And that was certainly true of me. Um for a long time before I started writing, I was incredibly private about what I was going through. I didn't tell anybody other than my very closest friends. And and part of the reason for that was that I wasn't ready to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, my identification with the disease was forced, right? Like when you lose your hair and you leave the hospital, a bald head uh, or, you know, a port protruding from your chest, right? Those are like international symbols of cancer. So mm-hmm. I think other people started perceiving me that way and, and maybe labeling that way before I started to myself. And then because I was sick for so long, 
Um, at some point, it did feel like, you know, being a cancer patient was this all-consuming thing uh, that didn't leave room for the other parts of who I'd been and who I wanted to be. And I think it's only recently, um, just in the last two years since I've been out of treatment, that I've tried to figure out um, how big of a part of who I am and, and how I think of myself and how I present myself do I want the cancer thing to be. Can we just take a moment to celebrate two years cancer-free? That's awesome. Thank you. This girl is on fire. Back to Suleika in a minute, but a quick favor for us. We're building an even better podcast in the coming months, and we'd like your help. Tell us what you like, don't like, and wish we could do in the future, as well as a little bit about how you mash up. Today at mashupamericans.com slash survey. Back to the show. I want to hear about your childhood. So, like, you grew up all over the world, right? I love. We read about how you were like the smelly lunch kid, like us. Yeah. You know? So, can you just tell us a little bit about growing up? Like, what what's your family like? So, I was born uh, on Sixth Street and Avenue A in the East Village, overlooking Tompkins Square Park. Back before it was a hip, cool place to hang out uh, to a Tunisian father and a Swiss mother. Um, and were you singing so the songs from Rent uh, when you came I out was, of the womb? I doubt my parents even know what Rent is. I, so I, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I have three passports. I have the Swiss passport, the Tunisian passport, and the American passport, which pretty much uh, set me up from birth for a very nomadic life. Um, and between the ages of Zero and 12, my family moved around a lot. Uh, home base would eventually be Saratoga Springs in upstate New York. But I think I attended, I don't know, six or seven different schools and a very strange triangle uh, between Saratoga and different parts of Switzerland uh, where my mom's family is from and different parts of Tunis where my dad lives as well as stints in France somewhere. What was it like for you and your brother? So I feel like for both of us, we've not only always felt like outsiders, uh, but outsiders to the outsiders. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's had different manifestations for the two of us. I think, you know, my brother's name is Adam, and he happens to be a lot fairer than I am. So he's in some ways had an easier time uh, Adam and Suleika are very different names. I'm just going to toss yeah. that out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that we've had different experiences. For me, when I meet someone for the first time, they ask me where I'm from, and I'll say New York, and then they'll say, where are you really from, which mm-hmm. is an experience that I don't think my brother has ever had. Hmm. I have a question about sort of the mashiness and the approach to, to illness. Did you see different cultural approaches to your cancer from your Tunisian dad versus your Swiss mom or different religious approaches to dealing with it? Hmm. So I don't know about my my parents specifically, but certainly within my families. Uh, So for example, in Tunisia, like we're very superstitious. You don't say the word cancer, let alone go around, you know, taking pictures of yourself with a bald head and posting them on the internet Mm -hmm. or writing about these very personal experiences. So I've never quite asked 
uh, my Tunisian family what they think of how public I've been. But I know, for example, that my father decided not to tell uh, my grandmother about what I was dealing with. Wow. Um, I think in part because he didn't want to cause her any stress or any worry, but also because it's hard to know how to talk about those things in a culture where you don't even say the word cancer uh, because it's considered bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and my Swiss family, on the other hand, you know, they were very involved. And, and part of that, I think, is because it's more socially acceptable. And then, you know, there's also the thing with visas. Like my Swiss family was much more easily able to come and visit. Oh, um, mm-hmm. As far as my parents, um, I think that in a way, you know, some of the differences that we've struggled with as a family suddenly were no longer the focus. So I'll give you an example, which was that at the time of my diagnosis, I was dating a guy that they had never met who was living with me in Paris. And when I got diagnosed, I was home in upstate New York, and he decided to come. And for the first time ever in my entire life, uh, no one made up the bed in my father's office when a boy came over to stay Mm. and there was just this implicit understanding that like we have bigger things to worry about right now Mm -hmm. than maintaining appearances or even like Mm. having these conversations that we've had ever since I hit puberty about how we do certain things and what that means for them and what that means for me given the context that I've grown up in Uh, so I think the illness and, and getting through that Um, as a family suddenly became the focus and these other differences were just no longer uh, the priority what you mentioned that they came from also very different religious backgrounds your parents when you got sick did that kind of emerge at all or were there um, other sorts of like rituals or traditions that they drew from when when you were sick so my -hmm. mother was raised catholic and my father was raised Muslim, and we grew up in a very agnostic household. But I think that, in a way, illness forced the question of, you know, what religion or, if any, do we identify with? So this is kind of a morbid fact, but anytime you get really sick in a cancer ward, they'll have a chaplain come around to your room and ask you if you need any services. And for me, like, it was the first time that someone repeatedly over and over again over the course of four years would ask me to like spell out what if any sort of spiritual or religious services I wanted or needed in that moment and I think I would sort of reflexively check off the box that said Muslim but I think it raised a lot of questions that I'm still grappling with and that I still don't really have Mm clear-cut answers to uh, about you know what role, if any, I want either or both of my parents' religious and, and spiritual backgrounds to play into my life right. uh, and how you make sense of that in an environment where like these really big questions about life and death and what happens after death mm. uh, get brought up on the regular. Mm-hmm. How did your community, yeah. you know, and I'm presuming there's some mashiness there, but bring their own different cultural approaches to your illness? I think what was interesting for me, though, was seeing how my new friends, uh, these other cancer patients living on the floor, were grappling with those questions. So mm. my, one of my very, very first cancer friends 
was this Algerian man named Yahya who had lymphoma and was living three hospital doors down from me. And we'd both been diagnosed during Ramadan. Um, mm. So, and he was very sick and every day his wife would prepare iftar and bring it to the hospital. And of course, you know, neither of us were really well enough to, to eat it. Um, but we would talk about these questions a lot and he would always say, I'm praying for you. And are you praying? And my sentiment was, I'm happy for any prayers that anyone wants to give me, whatever, however they do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes from that summer that happened that I feel like sums up just how complicated all of this is and, and how heightened it becomes when you're sick is that one day, yeah, yeah, I was supposed to be on bed rest, tried to pray and accidentally fell and <gasps> hit his head on the linoleum floor. And the nurses came rushing in and said, like, what happened? And later he confessed to me that he lied to them and said that he, you know, tripped and fallen because he didn't want to seem like some kind of Muslim <laughs> fanatic. But I remember his words. He said, illness makes everything complicated, even prayer. Mm. And I felt like that moment wrapped so much of, of how I feel about it mm-hmm. up. Um, Did you come out of it with more faith or just more questions? I think both. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something, too, about, you know, it, this is all we're talking about all these different influences in your life and your roots. And but also this is all happening in an American context in which Americans don't, we don't talk about death. Right. Like we don't face being sick or like the truth of that. And you did at such a young age. Yeah. I um, have become really interested in the euphemisms mm. that people use. Like, almost no one ever just dies of cancer, right? Like, they earn their angel wings or they lose their battle or whatever it Uh is that we use as a descriptor to avoid talking about that thing. And for me, I needed to face that. Like, that's actually what gave me strength and courage was to, like, face the absolute worst-case scenario to try and, like, grapple with that in some way. And then within that, you know, to like be happy and to try and live my life and to be productive and to try to figure out how to write or how to do the things I'd wanted to do. Um, there are other patients who like don't want to know what their chances of survival are. They don't want to know their prognosis mm-hmm. uh, because that feels very scary and, and paralyzing for them. Uh, but for me, it was the opposite. And I had to kind of have those conversations with my parents. So I'd say like I read that you know, my prognosis without a transplant is six months. And my mom would say, that's not going to happen to you. Like, everything's going to be fine. Like, mm-hmm. you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I'd say to her, like, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. And and I know that, like, you're scared. And I know that you're trying to make me feel better. But that's not what makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel like I can't express to you the very real fears that I'm having. I prefer to address the elephant in the room and then to try and, like, move forward. Right. I definitely feel like I had a greater sense of kinship with people who were able to kind of not only, you know, face the mortality question, but, but also, like, find some sense of dark humor. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> and, and my brother was one of those people. Uh, pretty soon after my diagnosis, he gave me a new new nickname, which was Sulaikemia. It's <laughs> <laughs> so bad. It's so bad, but it makes it so much better right. Right, than when people are tiptoeing. It's like, let's crack some like really dark, weird jokes and like get on with it. Mashup Americans see things a little differently than everyone else. So every week, we serve up a curated list of the most interesting stories from around the world. Subscribe to our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter for a mashup take on global events. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. You will be delighted. So do it. mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. You know, we talk a lot about food at Mashup and kind of our obsession with food and where being rooted in different cultures. I wonder, if was there anything that you found particularly comforting when you were sick or connected to food-wise? So the unfortunate thing about chemotherapy is that your comforting favorite foods will soon become associated with very uncomforting, unpleasant <laughs> memories. <laughs> so I feel like once I figured that out, I actually started saving my favorite foods for once I was out of that process because I didn't want to taint them mm. with any sort of memories so one of those foods that i saved that i still love is like uh, couscous Mm -hmm. with warm milk and toasted almonds and honey Mm. Um, and that's like my go-to comfort food Mm -hmm. so the one that i ate a lot of in in treatment as a sort of placeholder for that was rice pudding and now like you cannot pay me a thousand (laughs) dollars to look at or eat rice pudding you know we loved your essay about hair and vogue and how did you feel about your physical appearance and style now you know given everything that you physically went through Hmm. so there's like the obvious heartbreaking loss as a 22 year old or any you know any woman of like losing your hair or like losing your curves or losing these markers of femininity and sexuality. Uh, I think some of the more interesting things for me that happened was over the course of my treatment, I think I lost about 30 or 40 pounds. Um, <sighs> you know, I wasn't the sexual being. And, mm. and even though I felt, I found ways to feel confident and empowered in spite of the way that I looked, I think for the first time in my life, I, um, I, I kind of enjoyed not feeling or, or like trying to have to feel feminine in these ways. Mm. Um, and it was a really interesting experience, even in terms of my male friendships, right? Like I had a much easier time for the first time in my life having sustained male friendships without things getting weird because sex that is just so was not on the table. Mm-hmm. And, and that weirdly was thrilling and, and a relief. Mm. Um with that hair loss, though, came more painful and, and permanent imprints on, you know, how I've had to contend with my femininity, which is, you know, infertility and, and going through menopause at age 24, which at age 24 is not even something that's in right. your vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make too much light of, like, those very real and, and painful changes uh, that come with treatment. But I think it was surprising for me to explore being a woman in a very different kind of body than the one mm-hmm. I'd lived in uh, for the last decade and, and sometimes kind of feeling thrilled by it in, the, in these new ways. Mm-hmm. It's also like 
well, I'll speak for myself. Like as a 24 year old woman, all I could think about was like how to dampen my fertility. <laughs> Just be like, don't get pregnant. You know, mm-hmm. it's like becoming a parent or it's like something very abstract. Then to suffer that loss, mm-hmm. like you're grappling with so many different emotional stages all in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, when I first learned about the infertility thing, at the time, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a mother. I had never even really, mm-hmm. the most thought I'd ever given to birth was specifically how not to get pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, you know, there I was in a fertility clinic in Midtown Manhattan talking about freezing eggs versus freezing embryos with my boyfriend of four months, which felt so premature on so many levels, primarily because I was 22. And like that, you know, wasn't what I was thinking about and certainly not what I was thinking about the same week that I'd received this awful diagnosis. Um, But I think I didn't know much about what I wanted, but what I did know was that I wanted to preserve my options mm-hmm. as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I call, I have these eggs, I call them my totsicles. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for a long time they were this symbol for me of like this life that I could have mm-hmm. if I chose to and if I was well enough to someday. Uh, so I think those totsicles give me a lot of comfort even if I don't end up using them. Where do your totsicles live? Yeah. In Midtown still? No, Yonkers, <laughs> Yonkers. So unfortunately... <laughs> Most people, when they freeze eggs, don't freeze them for a decade plus. Um, although I think that's changing. Mm-hmm. But egg freezing is very expensive. So about a few years ago, I transferred my totsicles to a long-term egg storage facility in Minnesota. Minnesota? <laughs> Which made me space. very nervous. <laughs> I imagined a truck driver with like my totsicles in a freezer Wait, strapped into the You weren't getting seat. like text updates like your your totsicles are now driving across the plains. I'm sure that's available now. At the time it wasn't. But anyway, there's also, this like, why does it make sense that they're in Minnesota? It's cold there's, there. No, because there's more space. Yeah, maybe. Space, more storage space. facilities. Excuse yeah. me. And the Mayo Clinic's (laughs) there, just in case. We have to talk about dating. So you were in a relationship in the beginning of your cancer treatment who, of course, I followed your life interrupted on the New York Times at the time. And, you know, and then when you guys, you guys ended up breaking up. Um, So how's dating now? Do you talk about your cancer? Yeah. So does everybody know before they get into it? They're like, ooh, I Googled Susu. and. (laughs) I think that for me, when I emerged from this whole cancer fog, I was so terrified of dating, not just because of the cancer thing, but even like the menopause and the infertility stuff. Like, how do you even begin that conversation? Do you begin it? When do you begin it? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to answer those questions for myself. And in a way, I didn't have to uh, because my partner now, who's been my partner for the last three years, is someone that I've known since I was 13 years old, we met at band camp. Oh, band hello. camp? Oh, oh this God, American, American Pie was about you, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he was someone who was incredibly supportive of me during the time that I was sick uh, and obviously knew about it. But he, you know, on the one hand, is so supportive. He has gotten involved in a lot of, like, cancer activism and health advocacy in support of me but on the other hand is good at like pushing me when he feels like maybe I'm 
you know, I'll say to him, like, I'm really tired. Can you get me a glass of water? And he'll be like, mm, like you've been out of treatment for two years. Like, you can get yourself a glass of water. Wrong so answer, like senor. Wrong answer. I feel like he's, we've struck a good balance um, yeah. of, you know, having a sense of understanding, but also, like, a, a, a sense of, because he knew me before I was sick, like, challenging me right. to, to push myself physically and health-wise. He played the long game, by the way, in the... I'm Suleika, I'm not feeling sexual game. I can just have male friends. That guy really played the long game on that one. Just he saying. Did. I mean, he he's did. been hanging out since you guys were 13. I'm just, We've I'm had just... crushes on each other pretty much since then. I love this story. This uh, is the best story. Um, I have a crush wait, on so, him okay. now. I don't even know him. I know. <laughs> um, tell us about the book that you're writing. Yeah. My book is called Between Two Kingdoms. Mm. And last week I was at a party and someone said, what are the two kingdoms? Which seems like a really obvious question. And the short answer to it is, you know, these kingdoms of well and sick, Mm. which for me, like now I'm healthy, but I don't, I have a lot of limitations. Uh, So kind of, it's about me traversing those, that no man's land and Mm -hmm. kind of feeling like maybe I'll be straddling those worlds forever. But it's also about many other kingdoms. It's like the Swiss kingdom and the Tunisian kingdom and sort of those liminal spaces. We might call that liminal space. We might call that how you mash up. (laughs) How you mash up, exactly. Um, But it's the story of a very long road trip that I took after the end of my treatment as I was trying to answer these questions of how to like recover and to sort of like re-enter the world. And part of, you know, my first big writing thing being largely memoir has forced me to be very conscious of what I choose to share and why. And I feel like for me, like, I never want to share something just for the sake of sharing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I I only share something if I feel like it hopefully will resonate beyond me and beyond my personal story. Um, Yeah. So did you leave anything out of your column because it was too scary or personal? Definitely. But I think, you know, some of the columns that received the greatest response were the ones I was most terrified to write Mm. because I felt shame or because I felt fear. That column, um, so two of my dearest friends and my very best friend in the whole world uh, also were our young cancer survivors. And for both of them, your work... um, I'll just like start crying, but has been a really important lifeline, even when they followed you just before they were sick and then went to your work once they became sick because of the honesty in which you explored all these things. And um, I think that particular column where you talked about that and also depression and all of the the stuff that follows, like everybody else is like, you're done. (laughs) You're like, actually, I have a whole lifetime of um, being afraid in some way. And I think when you're writing about illness in particular, there's like a lot of pressure for a specific kind of narrative Mm -hmm, resolution mm -hmm. that's triumphant Mm -hmm. and celebratory. And I feel all of those things, but it's so much more nuanced and complicated than that. And I think I've been most interested in exploring those spaces. Mm -hmm. So let us go into our speed round questions. So like a Jawad, how do you mash up? Okay, um, I'm half Swiss, half Tunisian, and also American. I have a black boyfriend from New Orleans. I live in New York City, and I'm a cancer survivor. 
What did you call your grandmother? Uh, I call my Swiss grandmother Colmer, and I call my Tunisian grandmother Sharifa, which is her name. What languages do you speak? I speak French as my first language, uh, English sometimes, uh, <laughs> Arabic at a fifth grade level. What is your favorite language to swear in? Hmm. I feel like Arabic has some added gravitas. Mm-hmm. What's and your maybe favorite French. swear word? Ooh, I can't say that. My father would be very mad at me. <laughs> um, but I like in French like a good, well-placed merde. Right? It I also was, sounds glamorous. No yeah, what. I was just in France and I just was saying it. I don't speak French. I was like, I'm mailed. You know, you gotta just <laughs> fit in with the people. Um, what's always in your fridge? Ooh, um, La Croix seltzer water. It's kind of my writer's crack. This is just the best. So, what's um, your Starbucks name? Susan. Oh, of Susan. Susan. <laughs> old Susan. Oh, good old Susan. Um, where do you feel most at home? New York City. What dating advice did you get from your parents? That was a long exhale. Um, (laughs) I got very conflicting dating advice. I think my dad would prefer it if I never dated anyone. Oh, yeah. Um, As for my mom, she had uh, the opposite dating advice, which is I remember being 17 and telling her that I was going to stay a virgin until I got married and she turned to me and she said, Suleika, don't be an idiot. <laughs> she said, you need to know what you like before you commit to it for life. <laughs> Dig your mom. Yes. What is your Bubba Misa? So anytime I leave my parents' house, they will hide a jar of water behind their backs and throw it onto the back of the car as I pull away. Because in uh, Tunisian folklore, if you throw water on someone as they're leaving around their car, they will come back. And that's something that I've held on to and that even my Swiss mother has adopted. I spent a month in Tunisia and nobody ever once splashed water behind my back. Ah, they knew you weren't coming back. To return. Clearly. <laughs> Can I tell you my favorite old wives tale? Yes. That was told to us by our Tunisian babysitter. Yes. Um, so and I was in the third grade and my brother was in the first grade and he had really bad asthma. And our babysitter, Fatima, Uh, pulled my mom aside and told her that she knew how to cure my brother's asthma. Mm -hmm. And what she needed to do was to find a fox and to kill it and to fill a bowl with the warm fox blood and to have my brother drink it and run up and down the length of the beach in front of our house three times and he would never have asthma again. And we told this to my brother and he said, yeah, no shit. (laughs) Well, he probably didn't say shit because he was in the first grade. But essentially his reaction was I'd be so traumatized that I would never report any symptoms of asthma to any of you guys ever again. Wait, but the thing that like the real kicker to that is the running up and down the beach. It's not the warm fox blood. Yeah, because that's like, I don't know what properties it had. Look, you got new bone marrow and everything changed. I don't know. Um, Did you inherit your brother's asthma? I was going to ask. I have not, not to my knowledge. Oh, I'm really glad for I've that. I've inherited his love of Tupac and basketball. <laughs> that came with the bone marrow too? Yeah. Uh, um, well, thank you so much. This is just wonderful. Thank you, guys. Let love lead. Let God Well, she lived up to every expectation we had, um, which isn't surprising because we watched a lot of videos of her, but she's so awesome. And from us and our besties, Abby and Kate, 
old millennial cancer survivors. Thank you, Suleika, for your honesty and for writing about life with cancer in such a real and refreshing way. Your work has been a lifeline for so many people. We are so grateful. You all can follow Suleika on the socials at Suleika Jawad, S-U-L-E-I-K-A-J-A-O-U-A-D. Did it, did it. (laughs) And make sure to find her book, Between Two Kingdoms, when it drops, which it will as soon as she's done writing it. The Mashup Americans are me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Later. Bye. Let love be, let God be. 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 God is love.